Hey, welcome to The Water Cooler, everybody. I'm David Brody. Glad you're with us. It's Monday, October 26, 2020, just eight days away from the presidential election. And President Trump was in Allentown, Pennsylvania today, and not with Billy Joel, by the way. Google it if you're under 40. Huge turnout, as a matter of fact. All weekend long, the president was getting large, supersized crowds at airport hangar rally after airport hangar rally. It feels at least like he's got momentum. Meanwhile, where's Joe Biden? No events today, no events Sunday. And even when he did open his mouth over the last couple of days, a bunch of gaffes came out. Everything from being proud about voter fraud, huh, to calling Trump voters chumps, to even calling the president George. Take a look. We have put together, I think, the most extensive and inclusive voter fraud organization in the history of American politics. And by the way, we don't do things like those chumps out there with a the microphone are doing the Trump guys. It's about decency. Four more years of George. Uh, Georgia, he uh, is going to find ourselves in a position where if uh, Trump gets elected, uh, we're going to be uh, we're going to be in a different world. The old George Trump, by the way, George Trump, president of the United States. The contrast is striking between the two candidates, uh, Trump with the big energetic rallies, Biden with the gaffes. It's an analytical comparison of two campaigns at this point. Now, as for early voting, it is through the roof. Pollster Scott Rasmussen will be here to give us the latest on what it means and break it all down. And the Trump campaign is courting the Hispanic vote in a new ad. Can it make a difference in places like Florida, Arizona, other swing states? We're going to have a closer look. Uh, but first to our newsmaker, I want to bring in President Trump's former chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney. Uh, Mick, always good to see you. Thanks for being here. David, thanks for having me. Well, tell me, uh, what's the prediction, if you will? Is the president going to pull off a 2020 miracle again? And in the meantime, he would leave the collective media head spinning if he does so, Mick. I know, I, I know a lot of pollsters who are going to be out of work for a long time uh, when the president wins next week. But uh, I have been out on the campaign. I'm one of the national um, chairs of the Catholics for Trump. So I've been all over Pennsylvania and uh, Ohio, Wisconsin, Minnesota for the last couple of weeks. And all I can tell you is it's going to be extraordinarily close. It just is. By any measure... Um, things are going to be very, very tight on Election Day. Take the polls, the headline polls that you see, David, in the, in the news and throw them away. When you actually look at the polls, which I've done, you'll see one poll, um, for example, in Arizona that might have Joe Biden winning amongst um, registered voters and then President Trump winning amongst likely voters. I happen to like the likely voters better than the registered. But anytime things are that close, it's going to be it's going to be a tight uh, race uh, into the election night and possibly beyond. Plus, Instead of looking at what people say, look at what they do. The, uh, the Biden team would have you believe that uh, Pennsylvania is in the bag for them. Yet when he does travel, which is not very often, uh, Vice President Biden is going to Pennsylvania. He sent Barack Obama to Pennsylvania. Conversely, uh, the Trump folks would tell you that, that Florida is, is, is pretty strongly in their camp, yet the president's still down there. That means they've seen stuff that says that state is going to be close. So uh, all the way ground, I think it's going to be close. And it's one of those elections where um, every single vote is going to count. Mick, uh, Trump won the Catholic vote uh, last time in 2016, uh, and with white Catholics even better, uh, obviously. What's your sense on the ground there? What are you seeing, and what do you think will make a difference there, especially in those Rust Belt states? Yeah, the energy is 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 something like I, I hadn't even seen in 2016. I was campaigning for Congress in 2016, so I was actually out in South Carolina, so I got a feel for the Trump energy, but it was nothing like this. We 
said the rosary at two o'clock in the afternoon in South Philadelphia on a Tuesday and had 60 people. I, I, I don't know if that's ever happened in a presidential campaign before. So the energy levels are extraordinarily high. The volunteerism is extraordinarily high. Keep in mind, one of the things that the Democrats have done is trying by trying to convince the, the country that, that COVID is a death sentence is that they've convinced their supporters not to go out and work on the ground, whereas the Trump team has one of the single best, if not the best, uh, grassroots ground networks I've ever seen in politics. So uh, again, everything is setting up to be a very, very tight election, I think, next Tuesday night. So just so I understand, you're saying you think the energy is even higher in 2020 for this president? Oh, no, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. I think in 2016, you saw people who didn't know the president very well and might have not been comfortable. Maybe they were a little embarrassed uh, by voting for President Trump. Now, they're afraid to tell people they're voting for President Trump. I have friends of mine, family, actually, who live in, in Minnesota, and they're afraid to put a Trump sign in their front yard because of fear of vandalism. That, that's real. That kind of fear is real. Um, and it does. that's the type of thing that doesn't translate through into polls. So the energy levels are extraordinarily high, and yes, I would think even higher than they were in 2016. Hey, Mick, uh, the media loves to make a big deal about all these big books, right? The, the Woodward book, uh, Rage, and all the, the, the salacious inside the, the White House gossip, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, they'll call it facts. Uh, what do you make of these type of, of books that are out uh, for, on two fronts? One, what it could potentially do to help Trump in the 2020 campaign, uh, but also some of what's been reported by Woodward and others, since you, you were there for some of it, at least. Yeah, I, I don't think it hurts. I really, I really don't. I, I, the, the political class is going to read those books. The same people who bought Woodward's book are going to buy Bolton's book. And I, I don't. it's such a small number of people. Keep in mind, we're talking now about 150 million people voting. I don't know how many books Bob Woodward sold. Maybe it's a million. So one 150th of the people who are going to vote. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think more than anything else, especially coming from folks like John Bolton, it's just bad form. Bad form for someone in the inner circle of the president's um, uh, administration to write a tell-all book like that. But uh, I don't think it has an impact one way or the other uh, on the outcome of the election, nor should it. Speaking of outcome of the election, uh, the, the president's been talking quite a bit about Hunter Biden. And honestly, the, the campaign has said, look, this isn't so much about Hunter Biden, it's about Joe Biden, because, you know, was he the big guy, right, the big man behind that? What do you make of what uh, they're saying as it relates to Joe Biden and some of the potential influence he had as vice president during his time when Hunter Biden was actually uh, doing some of these deals overseas? I had to laugh when I watched that uh, that 60 Minutes interview Sunday night on a different network when Leslie Stahl said they couldn't talk about it because they couldn't verify it, right? right. Um, but if it had been allegations against a Republican uh, uh, leader, what they would have said is, well, these are very serious allegations and they bear investigation and we're going to start taking it up. Of course, you don't get that because you do have that particular bias. Um, but I think what the reason you're seeing the Trump campaign talk about it more, David, than they're talking about other things is that the time for persuasion is over. It's a little bit earlier, by the way, in the election cycle than ordinary. Ordinarily, in this last week, you'd still be trying to persuade undecided voters. I really don't believe there are any undecided voters anymore in this election. Anybody who's going to invest the time necessary to vote, either early or on next Tuesday, has already invested the time necessary to inform themselves about the candidate. So there aren't any undecided voters. And what you're seeing the Trump campaign do, and I think properly so, is just make sure that this get out the vote, what we call the GOTV, get out the vote effort, is real, because that's going to make the difference. Most folks have already decided it's just a question of who goes to the polls on Tuesday in terms of who wins Tuesday night.
You know, Mick, I wonder if the Democrats' blind spot here on COVID-19 specifically is that Trump always seems to have a spidey sense of where the country may be going. And I wonder if the country is just sick and tired of being cooped up uh, and, and they just want to say, look, I get it. We're, we might get COVID. There's going to be cases. It's horrible. But cases versus deaths. And we just want to go back out to Red Lobster and, and maybe even not wear a mask. Uh, ju I just wonder if the Democrats, with this dark winter that Biden talks about coming ahead, might not be the, the winning message for them. Certainly, I think it's fair to, to assume that the, the press and the Biden campaign together are trying to make it look a lot worse than it is in order to try and make the president look bad. They're trying to make mm -hmm. the election about COVID instead of about what the world likes after COVID. Because if people sit down and say to themselves, well, this will be over soon, whether or not it's because of vaccine or a therapeutic or whatever, then we're going to get back to talking about the economy. And we all know that Donald Trump is better on the economy than Joe Biden. So I think the Biden team along with the media, is heavily invested in trying to make COVID the issue and to make it look as bad as it possibly can. Keep in mind, there's a reason you're hearing about numbers of cases and not numbers of deaths. is because numbers of cases are going up and the death rate looks to be going down. So, um, in, in fact, I've been very cynical and said, look, if, if Joe Biden does somehow win this election next Tuesday, I think a lot of us will be surprised to hear what how big a deal COVID isn't on the day after he's elected because they've, been, they've spun it up to make it look so much worse than it is. It's not a death sentence. It is a very, very serious uh, illness, especially if you're older or highly at risk. Um, but this is not the kind of thing that we should be shutting the government down. It's not just going to Red Lobster, David. It's whether or not the kids have to go to school. My kids are missing out on their college experience. Right. Other folks are having to stay home with their kids instead of going to work. The economy is really suffering. So yeah, I think the president who's still one of the best gut politicians I've ever seen, might uh, have his, his finger on the pulse of the nation in ways that uh, other folks do not. Mick, if Biden wins in November or December at this point, who knows exactly when, uh, what would it mean for the country? What's your, what's your sense of that? Well, I think you go back and look at what happened uh, during the, the, the Obama-Biden administration, which is that you're going to get, if any type of growth, very anemic growth. You're going to, have to, you're going to start to hear conversations again about how America past its prime, about how we have this new normal, that we cannot be a healthy, uh, invigorated economy anymore, that we're going to sort of take a place of the second tier of nations. The, all that rhetoric you heard as the Democrats tried to lower expectations mm -hmm. because they know now that their economics doesn't work. They know that higher government spending and higher regulation gives you anemic growth at best. If Donald Trump has proven anything over the last four years, it's that supply-side economics works. Lower taxes, lower regulation is good for everybody. It puts money in everybody's pocket. Talking about an average household of $7,000 more in income over four years ago. The Republican policies work. The Democrats know there's no theirs do not, but they're looking for an excuse. That excuse could be COVID. Mick, I got about 30 seconds or so left. You're a straight shooter. What was it like working for the president? Uh, he's, he's, I mean, I've, I've known him over a decade. I mean, he's demanding. Uh, I, I sometimes I call him the human etch a sketch. I mean, you never quite know exactly where you're going. Uh, yeah. what, what, what's, what was your sense of working for him and, and some of uh, how, you, how you have to handle that job? Well, it was never boring. Um, he was always <laughs> of my time. He never, um, he only sleeps about four hours a night, but he was always respectful. He never called me after midnight or before six o'clock in the morning. So that was one of the things I remember the job. It was um, what you see with Donald Trump is what you get. That's one of the one of the his greatest strengths. He, he does not yeah. have uh, any of these affectations. He is who he is. And what you see on TV and what you see um, you know, at speeches and rallies and stuff is what we saw in the office. And it was it was nice. It really was. I know a lot of politicians who yeah. sort of put one thing on TV and one thing off camera, but the president was always a president and uh, you always knew where you stood with him and I always appreciated that. Mick Volvani, always a pleasure to see you. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Ed.
That was great. All right, Mick Mulvaney, who, by the way, he has triplets, so sleep is paramount in the Mulvaney household. Back in a moment with Hispanics and can Donald Trump make inroads? Back in a moment. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome back, everybody, to the water cooler. All right, the Hispanic vote in America. It's going to be a lot more interesting than a lot of people think. Yes, Hillary Clinton won the Hispanic vote in 2016, and Joe Biden's going to win it in 2020. But just because he wins the overall Hispanic vote doesn't mean it's not going to be not only crucial in battleground states, but the truth of the matter is it's been rising and rising and rising in America. And I want to get some perspective on that by bringing in Sammy Rodriguez, uh, the president of the National Hispanic uh, Christian Leadership Conference. Sammy, thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Honored to be with you, my friend. Honored to be with you. Well, let's start with just Biden and Trump and, and, and the Hispanic vote. What is your sense of what we might see transpire come Election Day, Sammy? 2016, 30% of the collective Latino electorate community voted for President Trump. 30%. Mm-hmm. 28% is the low ball number, 30% is the actual exit poll number. Right now, we're looking at 36 to 38% worst case scenario. What does that mean? Six or eight percentage points. What does this mean? It means Florida. It means Arizona. It means Pennsylvania. The Philadelphia to Lancaster corridor that runs through the Lehigh Valley. It may very well be the swing states. I am convinced the Latino vote will determine the outcome of the 2020 election. Sammy, these are some shocking numbers you're saying, 36 to 38 percent. I mean, Mitt Romney did what, 27 percent, if I'm not mistaken. So, I mean, bottom line is that this would be far and away above any number a Republican candidate has done in quite some time. In quite some time. Last time was George W. Bush, 2004, where he garnished 44 percent. And the reason is simple, David. It's simple. And I could break them down. Number one is life. The Democratic Party has become so unbelievably liberal. And by liberal, the word liberal wouldn't be applicable. The extremist infanticide embracing worldview of late-term abortion and even post-birth, according to the governor of Virginia. When Latinos hear that, we're the most pro-life community in America. When we hear that, it is even antithetical to what Barack Obama laid out to us and for us in 2008. Barack Obama said abortion is a personal tragedy. I want to make them rare, still legal, but rare, and he even had an abortion reduction task force. The Democratic Party has shifted from an abortion reduction task force in 2008 to abortion on demand, late term and post birth. Number one reason why Latinos are more Latinos are supporting President Trump, in addition to the lowest unemployment rate in Latino history, the lowest ever, in addition to his commitment for justice reform and prison reform. Mm -hmm. All of these issues resonate with the Latino community. Sammy, I've got to play this uh, clip of uh, President Trump's campaign uh, trying to appeal to uh, the Latino community. Uh, Have a look at this.
Uh, Sammy, by the way, that's my new ringtone, FYI. I mean, I'm jamming on that. I'm jamming on that. But I hear family, family, family. That seems to be a big theme, Sammy. Uh, please sing it, by the way. If you'd like to sing that, I have no problem with that. Yeah, I will. I, I'll put my mute button on, and then I will definitely okay. sing it. I'll, I'll be singing this. No, it is family. It's familia. And his commitment and the president's commitment to strengthening the Latino family. Again, lowest unemployment rate. Not only that, home ownership. Home ownership during the Trump administration for Latinos has reached record-breaking numbers. Home ownership, the number of Latinos attending college, graduating from college, all of these are at record-breaking number highs. These metrics are unprecedented during the Trump administration. So if you care about faith, if you care about familia, if you care about religious liberty, hey, I live in California. My governor decreed that this Latino pastor couldn't even have a home service. You heard me right. Forget about shutting down churches. He did that. But a home service. Latinos care about their faith, about their family, and about their future. These three areas. And this president has resonated as, as it pertains to outcomes, viable, measurable outcomes, not rhetoric, in an amazing way, arguably unprecedented ways. That's the reason we're going to see 36 to 38 percent of all Latinos supporting Trump. As it pertains to Latino evangelicals, 66 percent of Latino evangelicals supported Trump. In 2016, we're looking at 72, 73 percent in 2020. Well, I was going to ask you about Hispanic evangelicals and specifically, look, you said uh, the prayer at the inauguration. I mean, there you were uh, back uh, four years ago. Uh, and this president, uh, what, what's your overall take after four years? There was a lot of skeptic, skeptic uh, eyes, if you will, watching him. Uh, but it just seems after four years, boy, uh, I'm just wondering what you make of it from a faith perspective, at least. Look, David, as it pertains to life, number one since Roe v. Wade, no other president can even match up to mm -hmm. Donald Trump as it pertains to protecting life. And I'm a pro-lifer. As it pertains to religious liberty, number one. I mean, that just you can't argue it. Even his liberal critics say yeah, he's done more for religious liberty than any other president. As it pertains to criminal justice reform, I'm committed to racial reconciliation. Yep. I'm committed to seeing people come together. And that prison reform that came out of a conversation that we had, I had with Jared, uh, with Paula, with Ivanka, with the president at, at a White House dinner in 2017. Look at that, an outcome. It became law. So, I, I mean, I don't sign on to every tweet. I don't, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I, I don't sign on to every single uh, tone or the, the manifestation of a tone. I, I, I'm more nuanced and, and more reconciliatory. Uh, but the outcomes, as it pertains to policy, deliverables, David, a tweet cannot hinder my destiny. It cannot. But a law signed by the president can infringe upon my God-given rights. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I am just looking at this from a, from a logical perspective, my friend. It's not about the tweet. It's about the policies. And these policies have been nothing less than remarkable. So bottom line in about 30 seconds or so, Sammy, uh, as it relates to the Hispanic vote in America, game changer for Trump, uh, that 36 or 38 percent, you're saying that is a game changer not just potentially, but in some of these battleground states. It may very well determine. Matter of fact, if President Trump wins again, it will be because of the Latino vote, period. Florida, Arizona, Pennsylvania, the Latino vote. Sammy Rodriguez, always a pleasure to see you. Stay well uh, there out in, out in California and every, everywhere you're going in the country. Stay safe. Thank you, sir. Pleasure. All right, when we come back, Scott Rasmussen, the pollster, here to break down the latest polls. It's getting tighter and more interesting for Donald Trump. We're back in a moment.
Welcome back, everybody, to the water cooler. Uh, the polls and the election. We're eight days away from the election, but there are polls everywhere. But when you look at all of the polls, you've got to check out pollster Scott Rasmussen. Uh, he's got a lot of digital download data right there for you, and it's been proven accurate throughout the years and years. He actually does a poll for Just the News called Just the Polls. So it's actually a podcast here on justthenews.com. I want to bring in Scott, uh, who joins us now. Scott, I really appreciate you being here. Thanks so much. David, it's always great to be with you. And, you know, Monday is the day that we release our weekly JustTheNews.com poll of the presidential race. So it's a good time to talk. Yeah. Well, speaking of that race and that poll, why don't you talk to us about this horse race poll? What do you got on a Monday afternoon? Well, for the last three weeks, we've seen Joe Biden leading by eight points, 51 percent to 43 percent. Last Thursday, you may recall, there was a little debate. Joe Biden and President Trump had a little chat. Some people wondered if it would have an impact on the race. And the answer is not all that much. Our poll today shows Biden is leading 51 to 44, a seven point lead. But David, the big story here is, uh, you know, we don't know what the turnout is going to be in election 2020. None of us have polled during a pandemic before. So I've been releasing numbers with three different turnout models. And this week, if the Republican turnout, if Republican groups show up a little more than I'm projecting, the president polls to within four points. Uh, That's still not great, but it's close enough to come back in the final eight days. So let's talk about that methodology or that polling. So what what does that mean in terms of 2016? So you, in other words, best case scenario for the president is he does just as well as 2016 or even better than 2016. Well, the poll that we released today shows the best case would be not quite as good as 2016, but it's close enough, yes, that he could result, he could reach a point where it's pretty much like 2016. Mm -hmm. The best case scenario for the president Republicans today is we're waiting for a long time for Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, states like that to decide. The only difference is four years ago, it took a little bit later on election night this year, if it happens, because of all those mail-in ballots, we could be waiting till Thanksgiving. Scott, help me out on the reliability of some of these polls. Uh, and I know there's been there's kind of two schools of thought as to how reliable they were. And uh, there was yeah. some of it was not taken into account in 2016, the non-college educated uh, voter who turned out in droves for Donald Trump, at least at the state level, it seemed like some of the state polls or the national right. poll, excuse me, didn't do it. So, so what's happening this time around? Has the polling methodology changed much or is it pretty much the same? The polling methodology has changed a little bit uh, and something very significant. Four years ago, not a lot of polls were conducted in the states that decided the election. This year, everybody that has a poll, that runs a poll is polling in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. We have a lot more data. Uh, but I think the bigger picture, you know, I lived at the Jersey Shore when Hurricane Sandy hit. And when we were watching the hurricane models, we didn't sit around arguing about it hit 10 miles to the north of me or 10 miles to the south. We knew a hurricane was coming and we got ready. What the polls are telling us this year is there's a broad range of outcomes. The best case scenario for President Trump is a close election that he narrowly wins again. And that relies on turnout. If that happens, we're looking at a few states. And beyond that, you know, don't, don't argue with me about a poll that where I say the president is down seven and somebody else says he's down five. Mm-hmm. It's not that big a difference. Yeah, no, good point. Hey, so what about, as we move forward here, uh, what is the narrow path for the president, not to kind of 
get into all of the states, but it seems to me like Biden's path is pretty clear. You got to win all the states that Hillary won, and then if you win Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, uh, you're there. You got it. Uh, Trump's path seems a bit more trickier. Well, in a, in a lot of ways, it's very similar to what I said uh, four years ago. You know, I used to have to go on Fox News every uh, every week, and I would point to the touch screen, and I'd say, the president has to win all the McCain and Romney states. He has to pick up Florida and Ohio. Uh, and if he doesn't do that, he can't win. So Florida is the starting point this year. My latest polling in Florida shows very close race. He's down by a couple of points, but a strong Republican turnout could push him across the, the finish line. If he wins Florida, he has to win North Carolina. And then, yes, he needs to pick something else up, a Pennsylvania, a Michigan. Uh, he also needs a state like Arizona. So it's it's as if the president, just like four years ago, needs to pull an inside straight. He needs to win every state that is competitive that he won four years ago. So just so I understand, if he wins Florida and North Carolina, and let's say, for example, he doesn't win Wichigan. Nice. That's a new state. The 51st state <laughs> is Wichigan. He won't win Wichigan. That's right. Yeah. Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Let's say he doesn't win any of those. But he's won Florida and North Carolina. That means he has to pick up something like a Minnesota with Hatch 10 or New Mexico right. or Nevada, something like that. That's right. And again, same situation as four years ago. Uh, I kept pointing out it was easy to show the president if he won those states, the critical states, Florida and North Carolina, that it was easy to show him getting to 263 electoral college votes. And then he had to pick up something else. And it turned out he picked up three something else's uh, in terms of Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Michigan. Well, this time around, same dynamic. If he loses all three of those states, if he loses those three, he's got to find another victory somewhere. Um, Minnesota is probably the most plausible option. But it's, you know, if you're close, again, if the president can get a couple of points closer between now and election day, well, then anything can happen. Uh, the underdogs can always throw up a buzzer beater at the end of the game. For sure. Uh, I think that's what Trump is relying on, for sure. And by the way, speaking of relying on, at the beginning of the show, we were showing lots of video of these Trump rallies, not just at airport hangars, but I mean, there's people in Beverly Hills, California and other places. They're all out there for Trump. And, you know, Biden's, you know, at a backyard barbecue with a couple of people and he's doing things virtually. I mean, it's striking to see the momentum, at least visually for Trump, but it doesn't necessarily show in the polling that we're seeing. Can you help us uh, kind of square the two or maybe you can't, we can't square the two. Yeah, I don't know that you can. I think that what this is telling us partly is Donald Trump, when he holds those rallies and the way he conducts his presidency, is the greatest turnout generator for both sides in this election. Mm. You know, the president turns out Republicans just like Barack Obama got uh, Republicans to go out and vote. So the president gets his own party riled up, but he also gets the other side. And that's, by the way, that's really the question. Will these younger voters who don't really care all that much for Joe Biden but really loathe the president. Is that going to be enough to get them to use snail mail and vote against this president? Yeah, Scott Rasmussen, always a pleasure to talk to you. I learned so much. I really Thanks, appreciate David. it. Thank you. All right, Scott Rasmussen, going to be with us uh, as we move on through November and December and whenever this election ends. Well, maybe it'll end in December. I don't know when it's going to end for that matter. All right, when we come back, California and Gavin Newsom. Look, if you want to celebrate Thanksgiving out in California, have I got news for you. Don't bring all the family members, FYI, and only a couple of hours, then get out. Back in a moment. 
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to the water cooler, everybody. Uh, look, uh, Thanksgiving's just around the corner, uh, which is exciting. Uh, Except if you're in California, uh, it could be an issue. Uh, Gavin Newsom, the governor there, is putting some mandatory restrictions on holiday gatherings. And by the way, I, I have them right here. Uh, let me just read you one just to give you a sense. Um, gatherings that include, this is at Thanksgiving, right? Gatherings that include more than three households are prohibited. Huh? What? There's a lot more to this. Let's bring in uh, Shannon, uh, Shannon Grove, who is a California uh, Senate Republican leader out there in the California State Assembly. Shannon, thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, David, very much for having me on. Shannon, uh, how do I begin this? Uh, what in the world? Uh, what in the world is going on out there? Just I'm going to let you take it, you know, take it for the rest of the show. We got an, an hour and a half. Go, Shannon. I don't know. <laughs> so just to let you guys know out here in California, we're under kind of a one-man rule when you think of um, the the way the, the, the state operates. Obviously, we don't have a legislative branch and a judicial branch anymore because the governor is under an executive emergency authority and he has total control. He's issued many executive orders that have superseded almost 400 pieces of legislation that were duly passed. And now he's come up with guidelines for holiday gatherings, Thanksgiving and Christmas, Halloween. And you are right. He says no more than three separate households. Well, I'm a mom and I have five kids and my kids um, all live in separate households and our, my grandchildren live in separate households. And under this new guideline, my entire family would not be able to gather for Thanksgiving. It also says that you have to gather outdoors. It also says that you can't coordinate or gather with other people. The words when you read this are actually, it doesn't say you can't, it's that it is not permitted. If you read these guidelines, it goes through these guidelines and it says you are not permitted to do this, you are permitted to do this, and basically back and forth. And the problem is, is that we live in the United States of America, even though we're in California, we should still have uh, rights. And he also says in these guidance, you can't believe this one, when you get to the household, you have to maintain social distancing, you have to wear a mask, you have to sit six feet apart from all directions. Um, from the other individuals in your household, you have to mask between bites so you can eat. All of your food must be, David, wait, the best one. All of your food must be in individual containers. Huh? What? Well, Shannon, All of your food. <laughs> I, I don't even know where to begin. Single serve disposable. Single serve disposable individual containers. Yeah, come on in, uh, honey. There's the stuffing in the disposable container. Phenomenal. So, so Shannon, let me understand. Uh, first of all, there's a word I'm thinking. Let me think. Oh yeah, here's the word: unconstitutional. I mean, yes. explain to me any legal ramifications uh, or legislative ramifications uh, you can do out there in California regarding all of this. 
So Republicans have put forth SCR 93, which is a it's a resolution that calls for the governor's emergency authority to end. The Constitution says that the emergency authority must end as it's at its early earliest convenience. And so we have constantly brought this forth and the Democrats have laid the motion on the table and not even taken up the measure. We on the Republican side believe that this needs to be um, uh, debated vigorously and we need to figure out why they're continuing this single man rule, this one person rule over California and and putting out these ridiculous guidelines that affect every day, every every individual's everyday freedoms. That um, SCR, like I said, is laid on the table. Democrats will not even take it up. And the imbalance in the legislature is so significant. For instance, there's 40 state senators in the state of California. There are 11 Republicans, 29 Democrats. We need 10 of them to come on board to help us debate this issue and end the governor's tyranny that's taking place across our state. And we and they could lose 20 percent of their caucus and still keep this locked down. So so just so I understand, are you saying there are no Democrats at all that are pushing back on, uh, on Gavin Newsom on this? I mean, they're lockstep uh, together on this. They are lockstep together and not one Democrat came on board to support bringing a CR 93 out of the Rules Committee for a vigorous debate to end this tyranny and, and one-man authority that's going on in our state. What do you think the repercussions of this are going to be? I mean, just uh, I'm trying to, when is he up for re-election exactly? How, I, I, I should have checked that out beforehand. He's up in 2022. So he's up in 2022. But my hope is that there'll be a red wave. You know, I'm asking God for a big red wave across California. You know, there are Democrat independents and Republicans that go to churches that aren't able to worship the way they so choose. There are Democrats, independents and Republicans that own businesses that are shut down, that are leaving the state that can barely hold on if they do stay. And they're being inundated with executive orders that um, create a presumption on workers' comp, taxes, more additional taxes, more restrictions, more regulatory processes, when they're just barely trying to hang on now. So I'm hoping that those Democrats that are suffering, that have lost their jobs, that lost their businesses, the independents, will vote red this time so that we can try to end some of this nonsense. By the way, I, as I continue to read, and it's like two or three pages here of rules, uh, one of them says something about uh, singing. You know, you, like, you want to do any sort of, not that I don't know if we would sing at Thanksgiving, maybe you do, uh, but definitely at Christmas. So if you're going to sing, well, you have to wear a mask as well, or they actually discourage singing, apparently. So that actually was put in place after the Sean Foyt event at the state capitol where thousands of people, I believe eight to 10,000 people gathered at the capitol in the Lettuce Worship event. And Sean Foyt just had a, uh, an, an event on the mall in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. So he put that in place to eliminate singing and chanting and also for churches. Obviously, worship and prayer is what he's talking about. But um, when you look at the guidelines for singing outdoors in public places, it can only, again, hold three households, including the host or the individuals and band members that are on stage. Now, if the band members come from separate households, then you would be limited to just those households with the band. He talks about instruments that can be played. So this was a specifically to attack um, yeah. Sean Foyt and the events in Lettuce Worship that he's having across the nation. Yeah, it's just out of control. Shannon, we've got about less than a minute left, but uh, you know, I, what I've noticed, uh, at least some of the videos I've seen, like Beverly Hills, California, there's the, all these uh, Trump flags and signs, and then in Newport Beach I'm seeing, and you're talking about this red wave, it does seem like, I wonder if people are just getting fed up with all of the COVID stuff as it relates to just the, the, the shackles that the federal government is putting on, on a lot of folks. I wonder if uh, that doesn't help Trump. I know he's not going to win California at this point, but maybe at least a red wave to a degree. 
A red wave two degree is something that we anticipate because, like I said, um, nobody likes the restrictions that are going on. Yeah. This is the only virus and disease in our history that's calculated by a fatality rate or an infection rate instead of a recovery rate. And so the data that's being provided is is not good data. And that's come yeah. out because of the CDC issue. But God bless you. Thank you for letting me be on. And I really appreciate it. Red Shannon, wave in California. Yes, yeah, sounds good. Shannon Grove, always great to see you. Thanks again. I really appreciate it. Good to see you. All right. Uh, when we come back, a uh, little uh, analysis, uh, which we do here from time to time. Sometimes it creeps into the news block. My bad. Uh, but anyhow, we're going to do a little bit of that here in the next block. It has to do with Joe Biden and his to-do list. To-do list. Not much necessarily on it, if you know what I mean. Back in a moment. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome back to The Water Cooler, everybody. Time now for the last sip, the analysis portion of the program. And, and I've got to tell you, things are strange. I, I mean, everywhere I look, there is video. And we've talked about it on this show. But everywhere, there's video of these Trump supporters. It might be a boat parade. It might be like this truckers for Trump. Uh, it may be uh, just uh, you see all these rallies that he has. I mean, it's everywhere. And then Biden, I mean, what's he doing? He's doing like a virtual IHOP breakfast? I mean, what's going on exactly? Anyhow, beyond all of that, I see that, and then I think the polling is telling me something different. So something is not adding up. We're about to get some answers on Election Day. Here's also what's not adding up. Uh, Joe Biden is off the campaign trail pretty much. Uh, He's doing sporadic events. And here's the reason he's off the campaign trail, because when he goes on the campaign trail, there's quite a few gaffes. For example, here was a virtual gaffe he did over the weekend. Extensive and inclusive voter fraud organization in the history of American politics. He, he was talking to a group and he mentioned these are supporters of his and, you know, Democrats. And he's talking about how they have the most inclusive and extensive voter fraud organization of the country. So I'm going with the fact that he didn't mean voter fraud. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming I may be wrong. Maybe he does mean they have a great voter fraud operation. I don't know. But I th- I'm assuming he meant voter turnout. Anyhow, back to Joe Biden. Uh, we, we have here the water cooler received his uh, notes of what he's doing this weekend. I don't know if you or actually on Monday. There it is. Uh, the to do list. Nothing. Um, that's on his list uh, on Sunday. It was also on his list today on Monday. Uh, we think it may be on his list for Tuesday. I know by Wednesday or Thursday he's going to have a rally. So good for him. He's on the uh, to-do list doing absolutely nothing. Meanwhile, here comes President Trump. As uh, they say in the horse race, down the stretch they come. And once again, you get a spidey sense feeling here. Is Trump about to just do this again? Is he about to pull another miracle in 2020 like he did in 2016? Uh, the energy is there. We heard from Mick Mulvaney on this show today. We heard from Sammy Rodriguez as well, that they think the energy is better in 2020 than 2016. And guess what? That energy is going to need to be there because there's a lot of anti-Trump venom 
out in the water and in the land here when it comes to Democrats. They can't stand him. For them, it's orange man bad. It doesn't matter. He's responsible for climate change. He's responsible for every bad thing that happens in your life. Now we wait to see on November 4th what happens. Back in a moment. Welcome back to the water cooler, everybody. Uh, JustTheNews.com, that's who we are. Therefore, we need to bring in JustTheNews.com's apostrophe S, Sophie Mann. Sophie, good to see you. Good to see you, David. You're always working on a story. That's true. At least you're supposed to be. No, you are working <laughs> on a story. What on a you... good day. <laughs> so this is a good day because you've is. got a story. Um, yeah, so today we're going to talk about yeah. uh, some of the early voting numbers we've been seeing. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the dialogue around this issue has sort of been that Democrats are showing up really early and in vast numbers this year in the polls as mail-in voting becomes sort of a, a bigger way than normal of, right. um, of casting your vote due to the coronavirus pandemic. So this weekend, the study was released saying that the number of people who have already voted prior to Election Day, November 3rd, has at this point exceeded the total number of anybody who mailed in or absentee vo voted um, in 2016. Mm -hmm. And what is what we've seen up to this point is that Democrats are ahead in those polls, which isn't to say that we know which candidate they voted for, but more Democrats have been showing up, more registered Democrats have been showing up than registered Republicans. This weekend, those numbers started to flip a little bit. Not completely. Democrats are still ahead. About 51% of the uh, either in-person early voting or um, absentee or mail-in ballots that were cast on Sunday were from Democrats, and about 31% were from Republicans, which is up from a percentage in the low 20s from mm -hmm. Republicans that we saw in mid-October. Um, but what that means is that we are still looking to see vast swaths of GOP voters show up in person on November 3rd, which would make sense right. because we know the White House has sort of been running um, a rhetorical campaign that is not so much in favor of mail-in voting. Right. Um, but as, as in-person early voting becomes more popular um, and polling stations begin to open in in big uh, question mark states like Florida and mm -hmm. to a lesser extent Texas, we, we've seen more GOP voters filing in, trying to vote early, trying to not run into that election day traffic, and you know, um, people who are concerned about the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, so we've, you know, 10 days, eight days now prior to the election, all polls begin to tighten, all the gaps mm -hmm. begin to close a little bit. So that's just sort of what we're seeing now, despite the narrative having been up till this point that Democrats were really ahead. Well, that's interesting. And, and you know, because for Democrats, I mean, you would think they got to yeah. run up the numbers in mail-in voting. You would mm -hmm. think, at least yeah. that's kind of the sense, because Republicans could maybe even score a little bit on election day. That's true. So we'll say. Thanks, Sophie. Appreciate it. Of course. What's your name? Sophie. <laughs> okay, now. good. Uh, on the show tomorrow, I have no... No, Rick Grinnell is going to be here, the uh, former acting uh, director of national intelligence, DNI. Uh, so we're looking forward to talking to him. Until then, have a great rest of your day. See you tomorrow.